0: Hi, my name's Anita Johnson, and here's a special offer. If you donate right now to Making Contact, you will be rewarded with that warm feeling that comes with generously supporting something that's free. Hit pause and go to www.radioproject.org to get that awesome feeling right now. This week on Making Contact. You probably have all seen a thousand stories that said that Hondurans are fleeing gangs, violence, and poverty. And yes, that's true. But it's not what you don't hear is that it's not a natural disaster, and that often shades over into a racist notion, which is the notion that the little brown people can't govern themselves. That somehow people in Central America are just naturally violent or naturally poor. And I want to say that this, this, what's going on in Honduras, is from a direct result of U.S. policy. And it's really important to see this in the aftermath of the, excuse me,
1: 2009 military coup. June 2019 marks 10 years since then-president of Honduras, Manuel Celaya, was ousted by a military coup. In today's program, Dana Frank, author of The Long Honduran Night, takes us from the coup in Honduras, which she describes as a massive shock that threw open the door to the destruction of the rule of law and the evolution of resistance movements in Honduras and abroad. And now Dana Frank, speaking at a benefit for KPFA Radio in Berkeley, California.
0: The morning of June 28th, 2009, um, there was a military coup that deposed the democratically erected president of Honduras at 5.30 in the morning, and um, pretty much every day since there, I've woken up in the morning trying to figure out what can I do to stop that. In the first two years, I was doing general solidarity work and then mostly writing um, op eds and articles, and eventually started going to Washington, D.C., and doing a lot of advocacy work about Honduras policy. And after about six years of that, I had written about three dozen articles for various publications. Um, about Honduras and every single one of them sounded the same. I called them Dana's latest atrocity report from Honduras. And you know, here, here's what's wrong, here's you know, whatever it is. And I couldn't stand it anymore. It was killing me as a writer. And so I started just writing stories of things that had happened to me. And um, and tried to talk to one publisher about it as a book and they said, Oh, we want the big context and it was too painful for me to tell that big story. And but eventually I decided that, yes, they needed to be embedded in that big story if we were going to understand what happened and so the book alternates between my stories of things that I witnessed or reported on or and sometimes did, and um, the big narrative of Honduras, the coup, the repression, the resistance u s policy, and advocacy work around u s policy. The terrible things in the book are very painful, and we also need comic relief. Not that the book is a comedy, but it does have humor in it. And it also has stories of empowerment as well as horror, and I'll talk about that. Um, the, the details in the U.S. Congress is very much about giving away the playbook for activists, particularly young people. There's a lot of weedy details about the State Department and what its policies were, and that's in there deliberately because I wanted people to experience how imperialism works in in lifetime, And of course I knew about this in the broad sense, but watching the State Department lie and manipulate, and how they do that day by day, and how they're doing it as we speak, I wanted those details in there so you can see how it works. Um, and finally, There's a complicated politics that I myself am in the story in a central role because I'm not Honduran. I want to underscore that. I'm not Central American. I'm a middle-class white U.S. citizen with professor attached to her name, and that meant that I walked through the story in certain ways. There's things I don't understand. There's privileges I have. The most obvious one is I can get on a plane and leave. Now, I want to underscore that I wrote this book before the caravans. It does talk about the so-called crisis of unaccompanied Um, undocumented migrants' children, minors, in 2014. But uh, I had no idea that that my poor, beloved Honduras was gonna be the October surprise in 2020, that it was gonna be this central question in US politics. One of the biggest points I wanna make is when you're understanding Honduras, it's not just a river of horror. But it's also always been balanced with joy and activism, joy in daily life, joy in struggle. But one of the media, things that U.S. mainstream media does is it talks about Honduras as nothing but suffering victims. And the stereotype is here's a woman crying over the body of her dead son in the morgue. And that's true. Those images are very real and very painful. But they they never tell you about the long history of resistance and joy and struggle um, they're always looking for strategies and political activism, and the caravans, of course, are a political strategy. Um, so, well, I want to talk now about the, or, uh, more specifically, about why people are fleeing and um, fleeing under such terrifying circumstances. You probably have all seen a thousand stories that said that Hondurans are fleeing gangs, violence, and poverty. Gangs, violence, and poverty. And yes, that's true. But it's not what you don't hear is that it's not a natural disaster. It's not a natural disaster. And that often shades over into a racist notion that somehow, and this is a, idea that goes back to the late 19th century and the U.S. invasion of the Philippines, which is the notion that the little brown people can't govern themselves, that somehow people in Central America are just naturally violent or naturally poor. And I want to say that this, this, what's going on in Honduras is from a direct result of U.S. policy, and that I would say very much refugees are from U.S. policy. And it's really important to see this in the aftermath of the, excuse me, 2009 military coup. Now, there were certainly gangs and drug traffickers in Honduras before the coup, but the coup itself was this massive shock that overthrew the rule of law in Honduras and threw open the door to the destruction of the rule and law ever since. Um, the coup itself was a criminal act um, on the part of the Congress, the military, and um, the majority of Congress, the military, and the Supreme Court. The democratically elected Manuel Celaya, who was not from the left, he was a centrist, from one of the long-time ruling parties, had moved slightly leftward in alliance with the center-left and left governments that had come to power in Latin America, but was also putting the brakes on various power grabs and privatizations by the elite. Um, He was put on a plane, very famously, in his pajamas the morning of June 28, 2009, and packed off to Costa Rica, opening up what I I refer to as the post-coup regime. Um, It was a collusion between all the branches of power. And it opened the door to rampant criminality. By 2011, the murder rate was the highest in the world. The impunity rate, which basically means the rate at which you can commit a crime and nothing will happen to you, has been about 95%, 90 to 95% ever since, which means you can kill anybody you want and nothing will happen to you. Then, in that context, the gangs really took off and proliferated. And yes, every horror story you heard here about the gangs is true. Um, but those gangs proliferated in the destruction of the rule of law. They're also very much locked in with the police. So the police are very much in collusion with the gangs, and the gangs come around and say, you have to pay this every week. If you report it to the police, then two weeks later the gangs will come around and kill you. Um, then the police come in to protect people against the gangs. You complain about having to pay your tax. The police disappear, from, and the military disappear from the streets for two days. Someone comes and kill you, and the police and the military come back the next day. And the police themselves are corrupt from top to bottom. It's not a few bad apples. You may have heard about El Tigre Bonilla, who was the national director of police, brought in to clean them up, quote unquote, in 2011 and 12, who was then documented to be a death squad leader from the early 2000s. Um, And the top three national directors of the police appointed a year ago have been documented by the Associated Press to all be overseeing drug trafficking. Uh, The military are even more tied in with drug trafficking than the police... Uh, Julian Pacheco Tinoco, who's the Minister of Security, who oversees the police and the so-called cleanup of the police, is a former general, and he has twice been named in U.S. federal court for being involved in approving drug flights while he was a general. The narcos and the drug traffickers in turn kill people who don't cooperate them. They kill each other. They kill people all the time. So when you're talking about this murder rate, or why people are fleeing violence, it's not random violence. It's random violence that is perpetrated or countenanced or embedded in the state security forces themselves. And this is widely documented. There's also a shooting up of domestic violence that's really happened in the last few years, highly documented, so called femicides. And that is again because of the destruction of the rule of law that you can, again, you can kill anybody you want and nothing will happen to you. Um, and again, it goes all the way up to the top. You may have seen... How many people here saw in November that the president's brother, Tony Hernandez, um, was a, was arrested by the U.S. Southern District of New York for being a drug trafficker? How many of you saw this? I'm just curious. Um, so there's no way that the president didn't know that his brother... It wasn't just a little narco, a little drug trafficker. He was... He was a major, major drug trafficker and also moving arms. There's no way that the attorney general didn't know about that. There's no way the president didn't know about that. There's no way the police and the top of the security could have not known the president's brother was a major drug trafficker. And this is, I'm just giving you the evidence for the tip of the iceberg there. And it's not like Honduras had a golden age again before the coup, but there was something of a functioning economy, and there was something of a a stable, functioning state, even though big parts of it were corrupt. And one of the things that has happened since the coup is this destruction of the state and the economy. And even if you're doing this on capitalist investment terms, the destruction of the rule of law has destroyed the investment climate because you can't invest there without the elites and the government just stealing money from whatever your investment is. Um, there's no enforcement of labor laws, even though Honduras actually has pretty good labor laws. And a lot of what... Are, talked about in the development discourse as um, as the development sectors for growth are in fact actively destroying livelihoods. And I'm using the term livelihoods because it's not just about jobs. And and for example, palm oil, a lot of you know that palm oil is very destructive all over the world. Environmentally, it sucks the water out of the water table, destroys farming capacity. But in Honduras context, it's been driven by two very elite families, and particularly a guy named Miguel Fucuse, who died who died a couple years ago, was the richest man in the con- sec- in the country, and had a private sec- a, his company has a private security army of about 200 people, and worked closely with the police and military to allegedly kill at least 150 campesinos defending their land rights against incursions by elites and their palm oil plantations. So this, these campesino farming collectives have been destroyed by palm oil, uh, and if you fly over, you can see these stars where you used to see diverse farms, now you see the stars of the palm oil palms. Another growth sector is tourism, and a lot of the tourism is on land owned by the indigenous Afro-Indigenous people known as the Garifuna people, and they have fishing villages on the prime tourist land along the Caribbean coast, and are being forced off their land for that. Berta Cáceres was a very famous um, indigenous and environmentalist leader, and also feminist, I want to underscore, and resistance leader who was assassinated um, for helping her people try to stop a hydroelectric dam on the Gualcarque River in Honduras. And she had reported at least 33 threats um, in the previous years, and the government never investigated any of them. She was assassinated by at least eight, seven men, Two who were convicted last fall. One of them was the head of military intelligence. But the family is very clear that the real intellectual authors of the, cl- of the crime, including members of a top family and the vice president of Congress, are still not been brought to justice. These hydroelectric dams are being um, supported by internet, inter- uh, excuse me, multilateral development banks and international elites, and they're destroying the environment and destroying indigenous lands. There's all kinds of struggles going on on them. The last piece of the economy I want to talk about of, or the us just say of poverty generation, is the state. Because what happened is the coup, just with the coup, the elites just completely robbed the state blind ever since. Not almost completely. And the corruption is just breathtaking. In the first few months after the coup, the, the teachers' unions used to be very, very strong, and they had this huge pension fund. They'd paid in food for decades, and it was completely robbed in the first few months after the coup. Just disappeared, the Teachers' Pension Fund. In 2013, a man named David Romero, a journalist, revealed that the president and the ruling party had stolen as much as 90 $90 million dollars from the National Health Service to pay for the president's campaign in 2013. And the attorney general admitted that has the same attorney general, he's still the attorney general, admitted that the documents are real. You can see the bank records and the check. At least 3,000 people died and 1,000 cents because of the bankrupting of the National Health Service, which had a really good system of hospitals. Um, and you know, there's just been some research, um, investigative stories in a publication called El Confidencial, you can read them online in Spanish, and they have documented that basically, every member of the ruling party in Congress got a state agency to rob. And so each one would have an NGO set up in their name and a bank account in their name and the money was just transferred right over from that government agency. And there's more than one, the Vice President of Congress objected to this. She's come out publicly and said she refused it and got death threats as a result. So we're just really seeing this giant thievery of the state itself. Um, that means that state services are in turn gutted, but also, and here you can see, it start to see the United States in the story, the International Monetary Fund then steps in and says, we're going to help with austerity, and so you balance your books. And so then they have these classic austerity programs that further privatize state functions like the telephone company or the electrical company, which then gets sold off to the elites. They bankrupt them. And then we don't have electrical services and telephone service. And the the IMF Executive Committee minutes for, I think, like three years ago, you can see in my book, they literally say, we're helping the Honduran government lower their wage bill. We're helping them lower their wage bill. This is what the IMF is doing, and that's driven by the United States. So, when we see that Hondurans are fleeing violence and poverty, those are the direct result of state policies. They're not a natural disaster. They're both thievery, a neoliberal readjustment processes, austerity programs, and privatizations that then people just steal the money once its agency is privatized.
1: You're listening to Making Contact and a presentation by Dana Frank on her book, The Long Honduran Night resistance, terror, and the United States in the aftermath of the coup. Subscribe to our podcast or check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is making underscore contact. And now back to Dana Frank. We
0: don't have the smoking dome that's upset that the US supported the coup ahead of time. We do know that the plane that took the president, the democratically elected president, out of the country stopped at Sotokano Air Base, which is a joint US. Honduran air base. No one thinks that they could have taken off from the air base without U.S. permission. But certainly you can see, and again, it's all documented in my book and other people have, that the U.S. has supported the post-coup regimes ever since. It did everything it could in the aftermath of the coup under Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, so we're not just talking about Trump here, to recognize the coup governments and make sure that the coup stabilized and to recognize a series of uh, near, completely illegitimate elections. The current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, and everybody calls him Juan Orlando, which is his first name, um, was part of a congressional committee that supported the coup. In 2012, he read something called the technical coup, um, in which the Congress uh, deposed four out of five members of the constitutional part of the Supreme Court and named new justices the next day completely illegally. Then he ran for re-election in 2017. Now, the Honduran Constitution says very clearly that it's a violation of the Constitution for any sitting president or vice president to run for re-election or even to advocate it publicly. And so, lo and behold, the Supreme Court that Juan Orlando had imposed in the technical coup ruled that, well, the Constitution violates international human rights rights, norms so people can run again. But of course, they have no right to do that, It's as, as if you know, the US Supreme Court ruled that, that Trump could have a third term, something like that. Um, so he ran anyway in clear violation of the, the Constitution, and in November of 2017, all the opposition, center, left, everything, even a little to the right of the center, united around an opposition candidate named Salvador Nasralla. And when the night of the election, the computer started bringing in, all, just like here, the electoral results come in, and it showed that the opposition candidate was ahead by 8 or 9 percent, with 57 percent of the vote counted, and the one independent member of the Electoral Commission said the rest of the results are con- consistent with that, and lo and behold, the computers shut down for two days, and gradually over the next two weeks, the government released statistics 5 percent at a time until The sitting president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, won, quote-unquote, by 1.5%. The U.S. has backed these regimes the whole way, so it's not just a question of supporting the 2009 coup. It's been pouring money into these regimes. Um, It blessed the technical coup. It blessed the re-election. It blessed the election that was stolen and continues to bless him. Um, There's also a long history of resistance in Honduras, and this is one of the things that drives me nuts, about media coverage of Honduras, and I talk about it a lot in the book, is the whole history of pushback and resistance in Honduras pretty much disappears from the public discourse. You just, again, have suffering victims. In response to the coup, this beautiful, beautiful resistance movement came together called the National Front of Popular Resistance that was, I like to think, our own fantasy coalition come true. And they were in the streets for two years really, really bravely, and a lot of people died. And it was a coalition of the labor movement, the women's movement, the LGBTI movement, the campesino movement, the indigenous movement, the Afro-indigenous movement, middle-class people committed to the rule of law. It was this incredibly beautiful coalition that held together for two years, and it was really a beautiful thing, and that disappears from history. Um, in 2000. 2000- 11. The, for complicated reasons, um, when the president, deposed re, president, returned, parts of the National Front of Popular Resistance morphed into a political party called Libre, that has successfully run political candidates ever since. And the deposed president's wife, Xiomara Castro, ran for president in 2013 against Juan Orlando and probably won the election. She was ahead in all the polls. Um, and then, when they, they, in Honduras, you can't have polling data a month before the elections. And she was ahead in all the polls but one, and then, gee, Juan Orlando won that election too. Um, But certainly Libre became the second largest uh, uh, party in Congress. That's still true. Um, Some of you may also remember the Indignados movement, which means outraged ones. When it was revealed that the president and his party had stolen as much as 90 million dollars from the National Health Service to pay for the campaign in 2013 bankrupting it. This really beautiful movement um, spread across the country and became some of the biggest demonstrations in Honduran history along with the general strike of 1954 and the post coup demonstrations and this time it was middle-class people who had many of whom had supported the coup and came from the two traditional uh, ruling conservative parties that were outraged about quite how corrupt things have been, and discovered demonstrating in the streets, and they carried like t- lit tiki torches um, as it got dark. And I can say I saw the two biggest demonstrations in the capital, and it was—I've been to a lot of really big demonstrations, and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I mean, we crossed an over an overpass on a boulevard, and you could see these torches and these lights as far as you can see in both directions on the boulevard, and. About uh, 75,000 people, and, and out of a country of eight million, and maybe nine at that point, at um, symbolizing the torches symbolized the people who had died in the health because of the health service bankruptcy. Um, and today, there's all kinds of struggles going on of indigenous and campesinos people against land, uh, against people stealing their water, against people stealing, against mine incursions, illegal mine incursions, against illegal dams, and people are being beaten up and killed and criminalized as we speak, but these beautiful protests are going on, um, not just Berta Casares and the Lenca people, but people all over the country. Now, you would never know any of this from the U.S. press. It's just suffering victims. Not Look at those four big waves of huge and beautiful resistance that are still going on. You never know there was an opposition party. It's all that just people are fleeing and suffering, not that they've actually... Tried all these things and died for it. There are at least three former Congress members from Libre who have been in caravans in the last year. But those who try to express and build alternatives are viciously repressed and silenced. After the election was stolen in 2017, people poured into the streets peacefully demonstrating and sometimes blocking roads um, and full of rage and grief, as a friend of mine put it, because for a few hours people thought that Nasralla, the opposition candidate, was going to be allowed to win the election. And it was so clear that it was being, the election was stolen by Juan Orlando that people like, went nuts with grief and rage about it, but still protests. There's no armed struggle in Honduras. They still protested peacefully, and they were met with live bullets by the police and military for the first time. Live bullets were used all over the country on the same day, and at least 22 people were killed by security forces, mostly by the military, and that's been documented by the United Nations. All those cases remain in impunity. There's a huge and powerful and long history of congressional opposition to US policy in Honduras. It's been a beautiful, beautiful movement from below, supported by the Honduran opposition. There have been multiple letters about all kinds of issues to the president and the Secretary of State, and as many as 94 members of Congress, all Democrats, in the house have signed letters saying cut all police and security aid there have been uh, there's something called the berta caceres human rights in honduras act that calls for a suspension of all u.s security aid until human rights conditions have been met and also that the u.s votes no on all multilateral development bank loans to honduras and that money is actually as big as the u.s money
1: apart from the berta caceres bill In March of 2019, President Trump announced that he would cut aid to Central American countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. So I want to say
0: just lastly a little bit about where that aid is actually going so that we can have a debate about it. There's $181 million that's still out there to go to Honduras, and some of that is 2017 money, some of that is 2018 money, and there's still the 2019 money out there too um, that has not been um, it, there's, there's authorized, obligated, author, authorized, obligated, and dispersed. Which this is—I just spent two weeks learning these things. Um, a lot of this money, first of all, doesn't go to the Honduran people. It goes to U.S. firms um, that sometimes get called NGOs and sometimes are just defense contractors. So, if you actually look at what the money is allocated for, about a third or a quarter go to the military and police directly. But what do they go to? What does it go for? First, fighting the drug war fighting drugs. Okay, so we're pouring tens of million dollars into the Honduran police and military when the people at the very top are both are running drug trafficking and everybody knows this. Okay, so we're, not, we're giving money to the drug traffickers. We're giving money to the drug traffickers supposedly to fight drug trafficking. Okay, so that's where that's going. Then if the other big piece, and I was just pouring over the statistics, is for border security. So what does border security mean in the Honduran context? It means two things. One is... Helping the Hondurans defend their borders against drug traffickers. Okay, so there was just a really interesting story in the Honduran. I'm not making this up. Um, in the Honduran paper, saying that they went to this border crossing in El Paraiso um, Copan, which is between Honduras and Guatemala, and it's a major narco community. And the mayor has been charged. With being a drug trafficker, and also incredibly documented with major electoral fraud in 2013, and he's trying—the U.S. is trying to extradite him, and that's not the State Department; that's the Southern District of New York, doing that. And they said some of these people, are like, okay, so this is a major—everyone knows—major drug trafficking cross point between the U.S. and Guatemala, and they went there, and all this money that's been pouring into it. They went there, and there was one policeman and one border official at the entire border. The other thing that border security money goes to is stopping the Honduran people from fleeing their own country. And this has been all over the Honduran papers, and you can see it in my book. They even use dogs to hunt down women and children trying to flee their own country. That's what it means when we say we're helping them with border security. That and supposedly fighting drug traffickers. Okay, So that's about a third of the money. Okay, Another chunk, now this is when we get into the so-called soft power money. Okay, so this is of 181 million for Honduras. 23 million goes to so-called violence prevention programs. And if you look at these programs, they're actually anti-gang programs in modeled neighborhoods in two particular model neighborhoods that the United States runs these gang prevention programs working with the same police they are just as corrupt and drug trafficker tied to the gangs as ever. In October, the police shot up a van in which a father was driving his 14-year-old pregnant daughter to the hospital, and the police just shot up the van and hit three children, three children of the family that were in the van. Okay, so these are the, these are the police in the model neighborhood, and the answer to that same corrupt structure is the top. Then you have this gray area that I can never figure out what it is. It's called good governance, and I can tell you, I get these congressional A's that are close to the State Department. So we're going to help them with governments and democracy promotion. And I'm like, what does that mean? And it's this mystery of of imperial arrogance that we're going to go down and spend money. And teaching the Honduran people about governments and democracy, while the U.S. funds and supports the people that are killing the people that try to get elected, they're killing the people that try to have democracy in their own country. And let me tell you, the Honduran people have beautiful ideas of their own about how democracy works, and they don't need the U.S. to teach them.
1: You've been listening to Dana Frank, author of The Long Honduran Night, Resistance Terror and the United States in the Aftermath of the Coup. She was speaking at St. John's Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California. Special thanks to Dr. Frank and KPFA Radio for allowing us to broadcast this recording. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Redman, Producers Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, and Monica Lopez, Associate Producer Aisha Chowdhury, Audience Engagement Director Sabine Blazon. and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.